Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's good to be back in the facility together again. And uh, online greetings uh, for those of us watching live this morning uh, because we are a church that gathers together, but we are also a presence online. So we're kicking off our new series, and today there are a lot of convoluted ideas of what the church is and what the church isn't especially during this last year and a half. So in the next four weeks, I want to examine what the scriptures actually teach uh, about the church and what it is and what it isn't. And so I want to invite you to fasten your seatbelts. I want to invite you to get your notes, whether it's your notebook or your phone out, and get it handy and ready. And uh, we're going to be going for a journey. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, as we open your word and teach your truths, I pray that if there's any junk in my life, that you would take it and clean it out so that I may speak your words. God, if there's anybody here today or who's watching online who has experienced difficult, abusive, or twisted church environments, I pray today that they would see what the Bible says church should be like. I pray that your Holy Spirit will clear up any misconceptions that we might have about what it means to be a part of the church. And for those who seemingly have been a part of the church since they were born, I pray that they would fall in love all over again with the mystery of your local church. That as we gather, we're taking part in a mystery uh, that's been going on for thousands of years and and that many people in simply gathering to worship you have done at the risk of their own lives and in places even now today around the world. Many followers have lost their lives simply because they desired to meet with other followers of Jesus. And so may we acknowledge that being a part of your universal body is an awesome and yet humbling thing. And so, Father, I thank you for the privilege of being here together in your midst with one another. Amen. So who needs the church? You know, when we say the word church, sometimes we have a sense of joy and delight but let's be honest, there are people who say, look at I don't need the church, or my favorite, tax the church. I may be getting really personal today, and I'm just saying the disclaimer, if I step on your toes, amen. There are some who have a, a state of confusion regarding the church, like what is the church? Let me say that the church is not man's idea. When one takes the time to look at it, we see that God, it's God's idea from the very beginning, and that the church is actually God's plan. And my prayer is that you will see that by the end of our four weeks, so what I'm asking you to do, even if you get rubbed the wrong way, you need to stay with me for four more weeks or three more weeks after today, because we need the church. Acts 20, 28 says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, which is the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. See, the church has an identity crisis today. Many of us know that little rhyme, you know, here's the church and here's the steeple and here's the doors and here are the people. Well, I think we have to change that today to, you know, when we open the doors, where are the people? Well, honestly, they're probably in their pajamas right now watching online, but that's a whole nother story. What's happening to the church? Why is it people in Canada are still interested in spiritual things, but they're not going to church? 
And I think it's time for us to take a look at what the church is and go back to the Bible to make sure that we're doing church the way that God intended. And so today's life lesson is basically a theological subject called Ecclesiology 101. It's the study of the doctrine of the church. And the church is the assembly of believers who belong to God. That's who we are. That's what we are. And so ecclesiology is crucial to understand God's purpose for believers in the world today. There are five things that we're going to look at today. Hopefully, I think they're going to be up on the screen. But what is the church? I want to answer that question. What is the purpose of the church? What's the importance of Christian baptism? What is the importance of the Lord's Supper and communion? And what does the Bible say about the form of church governance. And there's a little bit of other stuff that's going to be thrown in there. So ecclesiology is interesting because it helps us to understand the role of the church and our role in the church. It teaches us about the ordinances of the church and how church leadership is to be chosen and structured and what the church is to be doing in regards to believers, like with worship and discipleship, which we talk about in gathering together today and gathering together in life groups, and with unbelievers regarding ministry and evangelism. And so a biblical understanding of the church will go a long way to correct some many, many of the common problems and misconceptions that we actually face today or that we get fed in our social media feed. So what is the church? Many people understand the church as a building that you go to, a place that you go to. Well, let's be honest. We, we have buildings that we call churches. I get it. But essentially, the church is not somewhere you go. The church is not just an organization or an institution. That is not the biblical understanding of the church. The root meaning of church is not that of a building. The root meaning of church is people. It's not just a place. It's not just something where you go. It's something we are. When we planted Seoul, it was one of the things I tried to ingrain in my kids that we never went to church because we are the church. We went to Seoul, an expression of the church. And so the word church is a translation of the Greek word ecclesia, and it's defined as an assembly. It's the ones called out. And the root meaning of that, when you go back to it again, it's people. It's all about people. And it's ironic when you ask people what church they attend, what do we usually do? We identify a building. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 16, verse 5, Paul writes, he says, greet the church that is in their house. And so Paul refers to the church in their house. It's not a building. Rather, we have to understand that it's a body of believers. And now, so we can be really clear, church can occur on a beach, it can occur in our parking lot, it can occur at a kitchen table, church can occur in a family room, it can occur in a park, it can occur in a coffee shop, it can occur online, and church is where two or more people coming together in the name of Christ, when what do they do? They show their love for each other, they show their love for their community, they show their love for their friends and family, for their neighborhoods, but also as well as for their enemies. The church is the body of Christ, and he is the head of it. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so simply put, the body of Christ is made up of all believers in Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost and after Acts chapter 2 until Christ returns. 
And each of us, if you identify as a believer, each of us has a specific function and role within that body. All of us. No exceptions. And so basically, we can look at the church in two ways. We see it as a universal. I would have used the word Catholic, but then some people get really uptight. Who is he talking about? The no, no, no. It, it means universal. So the, there's the universal church, like globally, and then there's the local church. The universal church consists of everyone, everywhere, who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So we can go anywhere in the world. We can connect with other believers. And there is. There's a spiritual connection that's amazing. We are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. So this verse says that anyone who believes is a part of the body, the body of Christ. They've received the spirit of Christ as evidence, and all of those who have received salvation through faith in Jesus make up the universal church. And that's why we can talk about our brothers and sisters in the church in other countries all over the world at this moment. But the local church is described in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul writes, he says, Paul, an apostle, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Here we see that the province of Galatia, there were many churches. They had localized groups that were scattered throughout the entire province. So they had the Baptist church, they had the Lutheran church, they had the Ephraim church, they had the Mennonite church, they had the Pentecostal church. And, and, and it's interesting that's not the church. That's not the universal church. Those are rather just local assemblies, local bodies of believers. Again, I go back and I just say the universal church is compromised of everyone who belongs to Christ and members of the universal church should look forward to fellowship and education, edification in a local church. There's big church. There's local church. So again, the church is not a building the church is not a denomination. Rather, it's the body of Christ and all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what it's all about. And so local churches are these gatherings of people that happen even today in our city where believers can fully apply the body principles that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12. We apply this idea of encouraging one another, teaching, building one another up, knowledge and the grace of Jesus and prayer and other things. We apply these when we come together. So what's our purpose? What's the purpose of the church? We understand what it is, but what's its purpose? Acts 2.42 could be considered the purpose statement for the church. That they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So what we understand then is that the church, especially in the, the times of Acts, uh, is to teach biblical doctrine so that we can be grounded in our faith. Ephesians 4.14 tells us the importance of, of teaching doctrine. Where it says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. In other words, there's stuff that's going out there that is not Christian that's being eaten up by the church. And the pastors and the leaders, the shepherds, all have to come in and start creating a teaching doctrine and saying, look it, this is what the scriptures are saying. 
And so this church is also to be not a place of just teaching, but a place of fellowship, hence the coffee, hence the life groups and everything else, where Christians can be devoted to one another, where we can honor one another as according to Romans, instruct one another, again, spoken in Romans, be kind and compassionate to one another, as said in Ephesians, to encourage one another, as stated in Thessalonians, and most importantly, to love one another. 1 John 3. And so when the church gathers together, when we come together, believers then can observe also the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, however you want to call it. And, and for me, I love that. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a bit. But the concept of breaking bread, as it's seen in Acts 2.42, also carries this idea of having meals together. And this is another example of the church promoting fellowship. And of course, Jordan said it earlier, the final purpose of the church is a place that promotes prayer place that teaches prayer, a place that practices prayer. Remember Philippians 4, 6? 4, 6, and 7, anxious in nothing, prayer and everything, thankful in anything, peace. And so the Great Commission is given to the church in Matthew 28. The church is called to proclaim the gospel of salvation through Jesus and, and to prepare its members to be faithful in sharing the good news through both word and deed. You know, the church is supposed to be this lighthouse in the community, pointing people to Jesus. We read also in James 1.27 where it says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep one from being polluted by the world. In other words, the church has a social responsibility as well. It's about part of our business is to be in ministering to those in need. And this includes providing and meeting their physical needs such as food and clothing and shelter as, as necessary both appropriately locally, but globally as well. The church is to equip believers to, to have the tools that they need to overcome sin. I, I, life groups, addiction groups, divorce care, things like that. And, and so that people can remain free from the pollution of the world. And this is done, again, how? By biblical teaching and by Christian fellowship. The church is the body of Christ. Think about it this way. We are God's hands, his mouth, and feet in the world. We are doing the things that Jesus would do if he was here physically on earth. So the church is to be Christian. The church is to be Christ-like. The church is to be Christ-following and demonstrate that to the world around us. Now the church has two very distinctive ordinances or distinctives or ordinances. I, they're actually ordinances. We call them baptism and communion. Critical to the church. So what's the importance of Christian baptism? Again, according to the Bible, Christian baptism is simply a step of obedience. It's a public proclamation of one's faith in Jesus alone for salvation. Well, you know, for us, baptism is not required for salvation. Now, again, there's different theological issues. There's infant baptism, there's regular baptism, there's rebaptism. I'm not going to break any of that down. I'm just going to talk about baptism itself. And for us, baptism is not required for salvation. It's an act of obedience and faith and evidence that salvation is actually a reality in a person's life. 
Baptism is one of the two ordinances that Jesus instituted for the church just before his ascension. What does he say? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. And so these instructions that Jesus has given specify that the church is responsible to teach Jesus' word, to make disciples, and to baptize those people. And these things are to be done everywhere, right? Going to all the world. Until when? Until the very end of the age. So if no other reason, baptism has importance because according to this verse, Jesus commanded it. Now, baptism was practiced before the founding of the church. The Jews of ancient times would baptize proselytes to, to signify um, that these new converts into Judaism were cleansed in nature. We read about John the Baptist, and he, he baptized people. He prepared the way for the Lord, requiring everybody, not just Gentiles, to be baptized, but everybody needed this baptism that John was doing, and it was a baptism of repentance. However, John's baptism, which, like I said, was repentance, is not the same as Christian baptism that we see in Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19, or what we practice today. Because Christian baptism has a deeper significance. It's to be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what makes it Christian baptism. And it's through this ordinance that a person is admitted, really, into the fellowship of the universal church. And when we are saved, we are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, which obviously is the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says... We are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we're all given one spirit to drink. We have a commonality. But this baptism is the means by which a person makes, and we call it water baptism. Water baptism is, is a means by which makes a, pers- a person makes a public profession of faith and discipleship. In the waters of baptism, a person wordlessly says, I confess my faith in Jesus. I, Jesus has cleansed my soul from sin, and now I have a new life. And so water baptism illustrates in that dramatic style the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And at the same time, it also illustrates our death to sin and our new life to Jesus. So being submerged in the water represents that death to sin. Emerging from that water represents the cleansedness of our soul and spirit, our holy life. Now then, as we get out to follow uh, Jesus through our profession of faith. I like how Romans 6, 4 puts it. We were, buried, we, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So baptism is this outward testimony of an inward change in a believer's life. It's an act of obedience after salvation. And although baptism is closely associated with salvation, it's not a requirement to be saved. And I believe that a new believer in Jesus should desire to be baptized as soon as possible. In Acts 8, Philip speaks the good news about Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. And as they traveled along the road, they came along to some water. And the eunuch looks at Philip. He says, look, here, there's water. What can stand in the way of my, me being baptized? <laughs> Right away, they stopped the chariot, Philip baptized the man. So 
Everywhere the gospel is preached and people are drawn to faith in Jesus, they're to be baptized. And that's an essence, an ordinance of what makes a church. Well, what's the importance of the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist? Well, if you take time and you begin to study the Lord's Supper, you see that it's a soul-stirring experience because of the depth and meaning it contains. It was during the age-old celebration of the Passover on the eve of his death that Jesus instituted this significant new fellowship meal that we actually observe to this day. And it's an integral part of Christian worship. It causes us to remember his death and resurrection and to look forward to his return in the future. In Exodus 12, the Passover was the most sacred feast of the Jewish religious year. It commemorated the the final plague on Egypt when the firstborn of the Egyptians died and the Israelites were spared because why? They put the blood of the lamb uh, was sprinkled on their doorposts. Well, the lamb was then roasted and eaten with unleavened bread. And so God's command was that throughout the generations to the Jews that this, this feast would be celebrated. And so that night on the Last Supper, that's what Jesus was doing. During that Last Supper at Passover, what does he do? He takes the bread and he gives thanks to God. He breaks it. He gives it to his disciples. He says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood which is poured out for you. You keep reading in Matthew, we see that they concluded with the hymn. They went out that night to the Mount of Olives. There they prayed, and as predicted, eventually Jesus was betrayed by Judas, and the following days, he's crucified. We read about the accounts of the Lord's Supper in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We also read that Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And from these brief accounts, we learn how Jesus used two frail elements as symbols of his body and blood, and has established them really as a monument to his death and resurrection. And when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he indicates that this ceremony must continue in the future. And so the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of what Christ did for us. It's a celebration of what we receive as a result of his sacrifice. It's part of what makes up the church. So what does the Bible say about the form of church governance? Not much. There is no such thing as a church constitution in the Bible. That's something that's introduced by the state so that we can issue tax receipts, have tax exempt status, other legal issues, yada, 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 yada. However, the church does maintain some type of organization in regards to leadership and discipline. And we call it church governance. The governance of the church has assumed a variety of forms based on historical factors as well as our own theological positions. In other words, local assemblies are going to do church governance differently. But there's some similarity all the way through. Now, we can't really go back in history and speak about the precision and certitude about governance in the early church. But what we do know around 110 A.D., in Antioch, a threefold leadership gradually became the normative throughout all of the Christian world. And so when you look at the scriptures and we look at history, we see that there were bishops who were charged with sort of the supervision or oversight. There was a group of uh, consultors, if I can put it that way. They were called elders. 
And there's a group of others called deacons who also assisted and served in the function of the church. So there's this organizational pattern that we see in Scripture. And like I said, God's very clear in His Word about how He wishes the church on earth to be organized and managed. First, as I said, Christ is the head of the church and is the supreme authority. Second, the local church is to be governed by spiritual leadership consisting of these offices, the bishop, the elder, the deacon. Now, while some people draw very clear distinctions between those three roles, the terms are somewhat used interchangeably throughout Scripture. But they each share in common some of the same qualifications, for most part. In Scripture, bishop and elders are actually interchangeable terms. I'm not going to get into it. But it's clear that Paul and Peter's churches were led by a group of elders. And in that time, it was uh, older, experienced, or, or trusted individuals whose office was referred to as a, a bishop or an overseer. It was their job to shepherd the church. And so they were the pastors in the New Testament. And apparently from history, John, uh, he didn't format his church this way. He actually did it a little bit different. He had a group of elders, but only one of those held the title of bishop or overseer. And he was, so to speak, the head elder. He was the lead pastor. And sometime during the second century, here's your history, that structure that John established sort of won out. And so there's no real reference to bishop and elders being the same people after Paul Carp's letter to the Philippians, which was dated 110 to 150 AD. So it's interesting. Eventually, elders were called priests by the third century. So you see, if you start doing homework and you start seeing history, certain things were happening, but the structure's all, still all coming out of the scriptures. So when we look at the scriptures, we see that these guys called the elders are expected, elders or bishops are expected to be mature in the faith, not necessarily in their age. They are expected to shepherd the flock of God's people. They are given a special responsibility to what? Watch over doctrine and the practice of the church. And so in short, elders are, are concerned with the spiritual needs and the leadership of the church. Well, how does that affect us here at Soul Sanctuary? Well, let me tell you, I actually see it very simply. Here at Soul, the ministerial staff is the eldership of the church, but it's not just limited to them. In other words, there are other people in our congregation that I personally can go to that I view function in an eldership role, but on a general aspect. Now, the Greek word diakonos or deacon is found over 30 times in the New Testament and it's translated servant. And in the second century, churches, the deacons, were the ones who visited the sick and helped with whatever was needed during the services, and they brought the communion bread and wine to those who maybe who couldn't attend their, their weekly gatherings, and whether it was due to sickness or imprisonment, because they would go to the jails as well. And interesting, in the third century, there's actually a reference, you can get this, to them watching the doors to make sure only Christians entered the meeting. So the deacons are the tough guys. The deacons of Soul Sanctuary are men and women, and again, I cite Romans 16, just to be clear, who are qualified for the ministry of caring for God's people, and they make up our steering committee. They handle many of the details of church, especially the financial allowing us elders, us ministerial staff, to focus on shepherding and teaching the church at large. 
And so the role of the deacon is to work really close with the elders as they both build the body of Christ up into all maturity. And so in a nutshell, what we see is I take all the scriptures that elders teach or preach the word and shepherd the souls of those under their care. The role of the deacons is different from the elders. They don't necessarily have to be teachers, but the role of the deacons is to take care of the physical and logistical needs of the church so that the elders can concentrate on their primary calling. And over the last, what, 16, 17 years, I can honestly say that's how we functioned here. It's been beautiful. But there's also five offices added within the church. And again, if you open up your Bibles to Ephesians 4, we see what they are. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, each of these offices are very diverse, but they make up the church. And the apostle has a very unique responsibility of establishing the church and building it through the word of God. And this ministry will also include the planting of churches. And I think the function is similar to the task of a a pioneer ministry missionary today. They're an apostle. They're out there. They're doing it. They're, They're called to influence and impact cities and nations with the gospel of Jesus. And we see this pattern in, in the early church that whenever the apostles stepped into cities, they influenced an entire city. <laughs> and in some cases, they caused turmoil. And there's certain qualifications for apostles. I just don't want to get into that just yet. The prophet is a speaker for God. Prophets are those in the church who have a special ministry of inspired utterance. Well, the apostles and the evangelists, they, they took the gospel to the world. The prophets, they, their job is to edify. And they had this edifying ministry in, in various churches. For example, Judas and Silas, who, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the local church. If you read Acts chapter 15, beginning at 32. There's the evangelist. The evangelist is the bringer of the good news. Paul was an evangelist as well as an apostle. Philip, as we read in Acts, was an evangelist. Timothy was an evangelist. All the early disciples on being driven out of Jerusalem went everywhere. What did they do? They preached the word. They were evangelists according to Acts 8 verse 4. And everyone possesses the gift of evangelism in part. Yes, you do. And sometimes that gift is to be obligated to exercise its privilege and duty. But I'll just say, when we talk about the gift of evangelism, there are people who are specifically endued with it. And so the evangelist moves about preaching the gospel, and unbelievers come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, and we, there are some of us, we have friends, we know they're just naturally evangelists. They fit into that category. That's just who they are. And the work of the pastor and the teacher then steps in and begins to instruct these new converts or instructs others, instructs the local church of the things of God and begins to build them up in faith. Again, the term pastor can also be translated as shepherds. Jesus himself is called the good shepherd who cares for the flock, cares for them, knows them, rescues them. When they're astray, he lays down his life for them, and he remains the chief shepherd. So pastors, according to this list, have the ministry and the responsibility of caring for and protecting God's flock. And I I would have to say that that's probably my heaviest load. The buck stops here. 
You know, usually when people are mad, the buck stops here. I get it. I have no problem with that. That's my load. But I have a ministry of caring and protecting God's flock. And so pastors, we're to serve, we're to inspire, we're to live as role models for our assembly, and sometimes I shake my head when I say that. But it is. And then there's teachers. Teachers are given the special ability to explain and interpret the truth of God's revelation. We see that in Matthew and in Ephesians and 2 John. Some of the teachers uh, in the early church were itinerant. They would go from church to church. However, Ephesians seems to actually connect, interesting enough, Ephesians 4 connects both the pastor and the teacher as a twofold ministry. So we have these five offices, and they're actually quite diverse when you first look at it, but actually they can overlap with each other. And even though they overlap with each other, the goal is one and the same. The goal for the church today is to glorify God and to see the kingdom of God advance. Every office is essential, whether it's, you want to call it bishop or elder, deacon, or you want to go with the five offices. They're all essential. And although they may be very different, unity is the key. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but they all come from the same spirit. There are different ways to serve the same Lord. And we can each do different things. Yet the same God works in all of us and helps us in everything we do. And so the textbook definition is that a church is a body of called out believers united together for what? For worship, for prayer, for study of the word of God. We do uh, observe the ordinances. We have fellowship. We have the proclamation of the word. And wherever service God may also require from us. And if our church or any church is to meet this definition, there are three characteristics which it must possess. Commonality, community, and communication. Failure in any of these areas is actually to weaken the church and failure to be the church that Christ would have us to be. There has to be commonality, people. Ephesians 4 says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So we have a common message. We have a common salvation. And salvation by grace through Christ alone. Salvation is by accepting through faith God's grace alone, apart from works. Apart from any rituals or any other form of human endeavor, just read Ephesians chapter 2, the church must preach the right message. And that message is that salvation is by faith in Jesus only. We have a common roadmap. We call it the Bible. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They studied the scriptures. They studied the Old and the New Testaments uh, they realized as time went on that the New Testament was an inspiration given by God and that it was sufficient and that they began to look at and study the only rule of faith and practice. They began to use the scriptures to judge controversies that began to spring up in their cultures. 
And so we, we read, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, look, at all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that man, the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly finished unto all good works. And so in the church, unapologetically, the Bible has to be taught. And it's used, as Paul said, as inspiration, profitable for doctrine, for proof, for, uh, reproof or correction, right? And to tell us how to live. And we have a common goal. When we come together, we have a common goal. It's the glorification of Jesus. Acts 2.47 tells us the church was daily praising God. And so the purpose of the church is to glorify God by being godlike in the world. Listen to that. Being godlike in the world and to live in the world as Christ lived. And to allow his life to be lived out through his body, which is you and I. And as Jesus was given one mission by his Father, he in turn gives us only one mission. He gives one mission to us, his church. The church exists in the world for the same ultimate purpose for which Christ came, to reveal the glory of God to all mankind. Ephesians 3 says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so we have a common bond, people. I like what Acts 2.44 says, or 2.44-46, Now to all who believed were together, they had all things in common in one accord. It's interesting. I came across this in my study. I came across this statement. It says, We are called the body of Christ, not the collection of Christ's body parts. Secondly, there has to be community. Acts 2.42, you know, the church was committed to fellowship. They were in one accord. Acts 2. 432 says that they were of one heart and one soul. So the church rallies together. The church should be reaching out to meet the needs of one another. A church stands with one another, not against one another. We live in the, one of the most divided times. Last time the church was so divided was back in the 1960s when the civil rights movement was rising up. Now we have this thing called a pandemic. Yeah, I'm going there today. We are so divided and it's so stupid. Trust you got an email from us. I'll say this, it has not been easy for my staff or for me. But I need to say this. I wore black because I've been called a Nazi a few times, so I just wanted to embrace it today.
when it comes to the issues of governmental guidelines during this pandemic, I am happy to do whatever it is recommended by our government as long as it does not push me to disrespect, to disobey, or to deny Jesus Christ. Because then I can move along with my focus on things that are more naturally and supernaturally actually occupy my attention, like the mission and the message of Jesus and what it means to help people experience and extend the kingdom of heaven on earth. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And I think we have a whole lot to learn from the first generation of Christ followers when we look at the early church, persecuted as they were. Um, they seem to have a singular focus of experiencing and extending the kingdom of heaven on earth. We're seeing that in some of the restricted access nations right now, if you want to say about it, Afghanistan, where reports are where the Taliban is walking into small groups and small church meetings and killing people. And no, that's not just made-up news. The Great Commission, both for the early church and as well as for our brothers and sisters overseas, the, the Great Commission was their reason for being and to accomplish their calling to make disciples of all nations. And when we look at history, we see the first Christians were happy to bend where they could so that they could save up their energies where? To be inflexible where they may have to be. And they were brilliantly strategic. They refused to be embroiled in debates that it could absorb their limited energies and pull them off mission. And I want to say that we as the church is being pulled off mission. It's amazing that Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you to love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. But that you love one another. And again, when he speaks of love, it's a special type of love. It's an unselfish love, agape love, loving the other for the sake of others' sake without anything in it for ourselves. And I think we're missing some of us today in our church culture. We have our opinions. Awesome. Keep them to yourself. Stop responding to stuff that ticks you off when you're on social media. Just delete the comments. I do. Actually, they stole my phone. My family has my phone hijacked this weekend, so I'm just saying. So if I am getting nasty emails and texts, I don't know, and so I laugh at you. Ha ha. <laughs> the church has to be a place of healing. According to Galatians 5.13, we're to serve one another humbly in love. Romans 14, Matthew 18, Matthew 5, Galatians 6, all deal with the proper way to deal with those who are the weaker brothers or sisters in Christ, how to handle conflict within the body of Christ when it rises. But when conflict arises, 
Sacrificial love must rise higher in a spirit of meekness and compassion. And God expects us to obey his law of love. Loving as Christ loved us. Jesus said, John, you'll know all this when you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think that's the dividing line. I think we lost the love for one another. I think we're, we're caught up in our own political agendas. We're caught up in our own political parties. We're all caught up in our own vaccination, unvaccination. We're all caught up in masks. Honestly, my only thing is, is if you can't wear a mask, don't even get me started. I hate seatbelts, right? Like, I can give you the whole thing, and some of you are going, oh, okay, he's going on. Yeah, I got, the, I got the show here, so that I can go off all I want. There's a lot of things I don't like. But we do. Why? Because it's not about me. And I think the church needs to get off the negative stuff that's coming out there and making us look like complete idiots, making us looking so divided. And we need to refocus and get back to mission. We need to be able to work alongside together. Maybe that we don't agree with. Whether they're liberal or conservative or NDP or green or PPC, that's fine. But let's work together on God's mission, which, when I read the scripture, there's no politics. There is no party. And finally, there has to be communication. And there has to be communication of the needs, both material and spiritual. And again, it goes back to Galatians 2, where it says what? Bear one another's burdens. We're not in this by ourselves. Hence, we want you to be involved in a life group. Hence, we want to pray for you. And when we bear one another's burdens, Galatians continues on and says to fulfill the law of Christ. James 5 says, confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The church needs to be ready to pray for each other in whatever situation God places us in. Hebrews 10 tells us that we shouldn't stray away from doing church meetings as some have developed in the habit of doing. But we should continue to meet together and encourage each other. And I'll say this, people, we need to do this even more today. When it comes to the importance of gathering together, just go to Judges 2, chapter 2, verse 10. It reads that after a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, in other words, they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he has done for Israel. This is a passage that shows that history has a way of repeating itself when it comes to the importance of parents placing the gathering, the coming together as the church, as whether it's going to be important to you or not. There's something called the four-generation fade. The four-generation fade, here it is. First, it starts with parents who don't make church gathering together a high priority for their kids. Those kids will grow up and make church a low priority for their kids. Those kids will grow up and make it no priority for their kids. And those kids will grow up with no concept of God. All that to say that our priorities today impact generations to come. Our priorities today impact generations to come. 
And so communication and gathering together between us is necessary. This means sharing what God is doing in our lives. It means building each other up through wholesome fellowship, through sound communication. But also our aim should be giving out the good news of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of grace that provides the only true message for spiritual healing and freedom both in this life and, to a, and next to the lost world. And according to Acts 2.47, the early church found favor with people and their communication was believed, their communication was received, and the reason was their lives as the body of Christ matched their words. Did you hear me? Their lives as the body of Christ matched their words. And so the church is a spiritual force. And I think we need to revisit that again. The church is a spiritual force and it's representing Christ in the world and Satan wants nothing more than to get off our task. Yeah, we have a meth problem, we have a drug problem, we have child trafficking problem, we have a racist problem, we have poverty problems. But we're hung up on stuff. Who cares? That's not what God has called us to do. Matthew writes Jesus' words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is first and foremost a spiritual force against the, the power of darkness in this world. And sometimes we see ourselves hiding behind the church walls. And Satan's attacking us. Oh God, help us, help us, help us. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He makes it very clear that the church is on the offensive and attacking the very gates of hell. What? To rescue and to deliver those who are chained within. It's the gates of hell that are in trouble. And this is the true picture of the church. The church that Jesus builds. And too often we get stuck in our own wants. And we all can find fault. There's no shortage of that. God knows. Holy cow. Cows aren't holy here anyways. The other day, before my son finished them off, I was taking some peanut butter filled pretzels from Costco. You know, the, that of which I speak, it's like crack. You can't have one. And there was a shameless plug for Costco there, right? And, and again, it's all because all I wanted was a snack. So you got this big clear container. And does anybody know these things that I'm talking about? Like they're so stinking and addicted. Just go to Costco and buy the peanut butter stuffed pretzels, okay? It's great for your pouch. And so they are. They're in this container, and I'm able to put my hand into it. And, and I grab, of course, a handful of pretzels. But what happens is I can't get my hand out, right? And this is kind of like us in church. You see, in today's culture, we, we go to get what we want. And when we find what we want, we grab what we want, but we can't get our hand out. Why? because we won't let go of what we want. Church is not about what you and I want. It's about what Jesus wants. 
It's about what Jesus wants for you and for me. And let me say that again because I think this is really, really, really important. Church is not about what you or I want. It has never been and it never will be. Church is about what Jesus wants and expects from both you and me and our lives as we live them out, identifying as believers. And we can go and get stuck on ourselves. You know that we're looking out for our own security, we're looking out for our own comfortability. You know, we're all snugly because that's what makes us feel good. Because we want church to be our way. We want our songs, we want our messages, we want our temperature, we want our seats. We don't really want to have to be pushed out of our comfort zones because remember the chairs feel really good. But anyway, we're too concerned about our wants and our desires even when they're contrary to scripture. And we all know that we usually bring up issues only when it suits our purposes so that we can get what we want. But is that really the spirit of Jesus? Now listen, I know we need a system of checks and balances. I don't deny that at all, and I'm not against those types of things. But I wonder how much freer it would be to do ministry, to serve and even be served if our main concern, our main concern as believers is just to simply glorify God. What would it look like if our church was functioning in all cylinders? We're designed by God to serve and to be served, to give and to be given to, to know and to be known, to celebrate and to be celebrated, to love and to be loved. And that's such a huge part of what it means to be the church, that we all do have a role to play. And sometimes we don't know what it is, but that's part of the fun of finding it out. So we can find it out together. That's part of our job. And if you don't know how, then you don't know where God has gifted you, that's fine. Look, we have the thing called Grow Tracks, and we'll have you sign up for that, and we'll find out together. If you haven't plugged into the church and you're checking us out and you're seeing a pastor rant this morning, welcome to Seoul. You know, I'll just say this to people because I, I come off as somebody who is uh, either Scary Jerry or, you know, he's so liberal or whatever. You know, I, my theology couldn't be more orthodox. Conservative, you don't know what that word or if orthodox is a trigger for you. My theology couldn't be more conservative. But my praxis, the way I do things, couldn't be more liberal. Why? Because short of sin, we do all things to reach all people for Christ. I hope so is your church. I hope that if you have found yourself in turmoil and struggle with other believers about vax and masks and blah and blah and politics and us, that you would practice love, unconditional love, and serve. I'm not asking you to change your beliefs and your opinions or anything else. I'm asking us to get along. 
I'm asking us to get back to mission. I'm asking us to reach a city that needs Jesus in a multifaceted sort of way. And that's what I'm asking. And you will know in the next series as we continue on just what that all entails. That aside, if you haven't signed up for a life group, you can do that in the atrium or you can go online. Pastor Mike has also taken this life lesson and has dissected it and will hand it out to all the leaders so that if you want to make this your um, your curriculum for the next four weeks, just get a hold of Mike and he'll do that for you. Because I'd love it if you guys would just pick my message apart. Go for it. Enjoy. Let's pray. Father, we can't do anything but thank you for the opportunity that you have made possible through your son Jesus to become part of your family and answer who we belong to. We have you to thank for forgiveness and the meaning and peace and purpose and that your spirit can bring us into the space that, and what your spirit actually brings into the spaces of our lives that cry out to be filled. And so God, I would ask that by your spirit you would guide us to tell others about you. And we want to be known as a body that lifts you up. It's you, Jesus. And may your spirit begin to fill those spaces in our lives that just need to be revisited, maybe areas that we need forgiveness or maybe areas that we, we need to forgive. And help us, Lord, be your represent, representatives when we leave this place today. May you stand with me. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hand for the blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. What's happening with the kids? Are they coming down here? I, I, I need a yes or a no, I can. Are they? Okay, parents, you're to pick up your kids at the stairs. So here it is. So sanctuary, whatever you face, you do not face it alone. Wherever you go, you do not journey alone. However you suffer, you do not bear it alone. And whoever you are and wherever you go and however you journey, may you go in peace, in hope, and in faith. And may you go with Christ, who always goes with us, now and forevermore. Now go, and if it means so much today, go and live the church. Be blessed.